so glad you could join us for mornings at YCVC today. We want to thank you for being a part of our online family and we hope that this message encourages you, blesses you and helps you grow in your walk with Him. So let's get into the Word. Alright, let's pray as we come to God's Word this morning again. It's always, we've prayed lots and it's good to pray more. So. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. And Father... We pray that you would help us to understand it this morning in its context, but also in the context of our lives. Give us not just mental understanding, but hard understanding that it might transform us and shape us, uh, that it would, as we've already prayed about worship, that we would be attuned to who you are and who you're calling us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So although our reading comes from the New Testament this morning, we're continuing to sit with that story of Israel's return to the promised land after exile. Uh, So we're continuing to sit in that gap, so to speak. So we talked a couple of weeks ago about worshipping in that gap as as we rebuild, uh, about not despising the foundational days, but but moving forward and rebuilding as a church family and and worshipping in the gap in that space. Um, we spoke last week about more about how we live out being in that gap, about how we respond to fear and opposition and fatigue with prayer, with wise action, and with focusing on what God's actually calling us to do, to not get distracted by those things that we're fearful of. And so this week, I want to talk about how do we respond to God's grace? And so I'm going to bookend our our message this morning with with some of that reading that Russell read for us this morning from Romans chapter chapter 5 and 6. And thank you for uh, managing the challenge of reading across chapters, Russell, that sometimes the the chapters and the verses are really helpful. They help us find uh, verses, but sometimes they kind of interrupt the flow. And so... uh, this reading from Romans chapter 5 and into, into chapter 6 kind of is a template that I want to overlay over the story that we're going to dive into um, from Ezra this morning. But the question I want us to explore is that question that, that Paul asked the church in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? And so he's, he's talking about what shall we say then in response to the grace that is, is spoken about at the end of chapter 5. But really, Paul has spent the first five chapters of Romans unpacking and articulating in a profound way that we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our sin level being low enough. We're not saved by our good works level being high enough. We're not saved by our law abidance. We're saved through faith. We're saved through grace. Which raises the question, how shall we respond? What shall we say in response to God's grace? Shall we just go on sinning? Paul asks. So that grace might increase. Because if God's grace is good and, and God's grace overcomes our sin, should we just keep on sinning so that we receive more and more of God's grace? That's the question that logically falls out of Paul's argument. And so that's the question. How, 
what shall we say then or, or how shall we respond to God's grace? I want us to sit with as we dive back into the story that's unpacked through Ezra, Nehemiah and as I've spoken about the prophet Zechariah speaks into this moment. And so for Israel, about 530 years before Jesus uh, showed up in bodily form on the scene, experienced a moment of God's grace. Uh, Ezra talks about this in Ezra chapter 9. He talks of the return of Israel to the promised land as a moment of God's grace. Uh, in, in Ezra chapter 9 verse 7. He's praying to God and he says, From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we are, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and cap- captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hand of the foreign kings, as it is today. And so Ezra is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the temple been destroyed, uh, and all of the people of Israel been carried off into exile. And he's saying this has been the consequence of our sin, of of our ancestors' sin to this very day. And so if you read the Old Testament story, if you read the Old Testament prophets, you see that over and over again, God had sent prophets to warn his people, to call them back to faithfulness to to him. And one of my favorite prophetic lines in there is, even now, if you turn your face towards me, I'll forgive you of your sins. But Israel ultimately refused. There's actually this great passage in Nehemiah that kind of details things got bad, so, so the people cried out to God and so he saved them and, and things got better, so they ignored God and they got bad and it's just this over and over and over a cycle again. But ultimately, Israel refused to return to faithfulness to their God. And so that's what Ezra is capturing here. He's saying, that's why we were exiled. But and then in verse 8 and 9, he says, But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. Those are the, the, the kings that allowed Israel to return to the promised land. He has granted us a new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. And so uh, Ezra is reflecting on the exile and, and, and that being a consequence of Israel's sin. And then he's saying, but now we're living in a moment of God's grace. Against all precedent, like exiled people in ancient times did not survive as a people. The whole point was that they wouldn't, that they would assimilate into the the territories that they uh, were exiled to and they would cease to be a people and therefore cease to be a threat to those who conquered them. But against all of that precedent, Israel has been preserved as a people, as God's people. And against all precedent, they've been able to return to the promised land. They've been able to rebuild the temple against all of that opposition and fear. They've been able to rebuild the wall And this is not, and this is important, this is not because they finally got their act together. This is not by their works that God has said, you're finally faithful enough that I'm going to send you back to the promised land. This, as Ezra says, is of God's graciousness and kindness. 
It's interesting to think from a New Testament perspective how he's talking about the new life that they have. As we think about the gift of new life that we have in Jesus. So Israel is experiencing God's grace in this moment of their return from exile. Because as much as their experience of of being conquered and exiled was horrific and a consequence of their sin, God's nature is to be gracious. God is grace. It's it's how he reveals himself in Exodus. Um, In chapter 34, he reveals himself to Moses. It says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for their sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Later on, I do want to add this here, though, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, uh, this is where we need to understand that, that God's revelation is progressive. And so in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, God says through the prophet, no longer will children, will the family lines be, be punished for the sin. People will be accountable for their own sin. Now, it's true that our, our, our sin can have a, a generational effect, but the truth also stands that God, as gracious and compassionate and forgiving, that's his nature, yet he cannot leave sin undealt with. And so the ultimate expression of God's grace is found in Jesus, so that Paul can say to us, who live in a moment of grace. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance. For it is by grace you've been saved. And so in Jesus, God's intolerance of sin and his nature, which is to be gracious, are brought together and and the wrath of God against our sin and the gracious desire of God to forgive it are brought together and Jesus pays sin's price for us. And so we live in the moment of God's grace. Because we are not saved by our works. We're not saved by our good stuff account being high enough and our, and our bad stuff account being low enough. We're not saved by ticking the boxes of the law. We are saved because our sin debt has been transferred to Jesus and he has died so that we might be saved by grace. And we also kind of live in this, this moment of grace, like Israel now. We live in this moment of God's grace where we've been exiled from our church building and gathering in larger numbers than two. <laughs> um, we, we live in this moment of grace where we're able to begin returning to worship. And so the question is, how do we respond to God's grace? 
How do we respond to God's grace? And so we're going to jump back into Ezra and explore how Israel responded in this moment. But before I read that, I want to say that this is, in a sense, an alarming passage of Scripture if we just read it on face value. And that's why I didn't get Russell to read it this morning. Uh, I wanted to be able to unpack it. And so I want to, I'm going to read some of this passage, but then I want you to allow me to explain it and provide the context. This is a tricky portion of Scripture if we just read it into our modern context. But I'd rather us deal with those tricky portions of Scripture and come to understanding than ignore them. So Ezra goes on in uh, chapter 9 in his prayer to God. And he says in, in verse 10 and 12, But now, so this is after... He's spoken about this moment of grace they're living in. He says, but now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples, by their detestable practices. They have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons Or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty or friendship with them at any time. That you may be strong and eat good things in the land. And leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. And so God had given this command that when, when his people first entered the promised land, that they weren't just to assimilate with the people that lived there. That, that the, their practices before God were detestable. And so God didn't want to mingle that together. And so this is actually the, the, the reason uh, for uh, Ezra's prayer right now. If we jump back to verses 1 and 2, um, we're, we're told that uh, the people of Israel, including the priests and Levites, sorry, after these things had been done, talking about building the temple and, and you know, reading of the law, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests, And the Levites have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Petazites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So on the surface of things, this might seem incredibly racist. Let me just name that up front. The idea of mingling the holy race with other people and that being a sin might on the surface of things seem like, oh, that's a bit racist. But I want to say as we explore this, this is not about race, but about religion. Or or to put it in in our context, it's not about race, but about faith. Israel were called to be the expression of God's holiness on earth. A calling they ultimately failed and finds full expression in Jesus. And the other thing we need to understand about this is there were means of becoming what was called a proselyte. That is someone who wasn't born Jewish, but became in terms of faith and religion Jewish and would have been fully welcomed into the, people, the community of God's people. There was a pathway for that, and, and in, in the Old Testament law, this was encouraged. 
if a foreigner comes in and wants, you know, sees the way you act before your God and, and to paraphrase, wants to be a part of that, then here's what we do. And in fact, there's, there's key women in the line of Jesus who came from outside of the Jewish nation, the Jewish race, but are celebrated parts of the line of, of Jesus' genealogy because they came to faith in the God of Israel. And so this is about putting God first and not the things of this world. This is about marrying, tra- marrying an attempt to be faithful to God with someone who's opposed to God in a way that is detestable to him, against him. We see this in a New Testament context. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, where the Apostle Paul says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and uh, Belial, which is another name for Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has says, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and separate and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And so this is ultimately not about marriage, but is about those who are seeking to be faithful to God, keeping that as the main thing. And to keep that as the main thing, it means not marrying that with someone whose faith and religion and worship is opposed to what is meant to be our main thing. This is about an uneven yoking. Now, I want to read another piece of scripture from 1 Corinthians now, and this will make more sense later in a moment. But I want to say now, as I said, this is a tricky piece of scripture that if you're in that situation, you should not feel any shame. The Apostle Paul gives us instruction about what we should do if we found ourselves in that situation. If, if you know, we're married and then we've come to faith later on or if we've married and, and you know, our spouse then rejects the faith or, or any kind of situation where that could come up. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Uh, Verse 12 through to 16, the Apostle Paul says, To the rest I say this, I am not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is living with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be uh, unclean, uh, but as is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves... Let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such a circumstance. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And so the Apostle Paul is saying, as followers of Jesus, if we're living in that 
context, we've found ourselves in that unequally yoked context to live out faithfulness to Jesus in that context. We don't respond, spoiler alert, as followers of Jesus, how Israel respond in a moment. We live out our life. But if your spouse leaves you because of your faith, then you should feel no shame around that either. That this is a complex situation. But ultimately, the reason we're in this story is it's not about marriage. I felt the need to unpack some of that. But it's about Israel's response in this moment of God's grace. And so it's not about so much individual marriage, but it's marrying Israel to that which is opposed to it. It's marrying the detestable practices and the sin. It's choosing the things of this world over faithfulness to God. It's going on sinning in this moment of grace. And so Ezra says, but now God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken your commands. And it could have been any of God's commands. Paul says, what shall we say then in response to God's grace? Shall we go on sinning? That's their question, but I want us to zero back in, not to get distracted by marriage and, 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 and what that means, but I want us to come back to the question for us. How do I respond to God's grace? Do I take it for granted? Do I just go on in my sin because it's okay? Jesus loves me anyway. Or do I allow it to transform who I am? And so Israel in this moment is a experience or, or, or works out a reconsecration, a rededication of their faithfulness to God. I was actually going to call this message reconsecration, um, but chose not to. Reconsecration means uh, setting ourselves, setting something apart as God's alone, as holy unto Him. And so that's what Israel's response is in this moment. Uh, They've experienced God's grace. They've become aware of an area of sin. And so their response is to reconsecrate, to rededicate themselves fully as God's people alone. And so part of the application of this, though, makes me incredibly uncomfortable. And so this is where it's, it's good to understand that, that these history parts of Scripture are recording what happened, but we shouldn't always read in an affirmation of that. And so there's parts of what happens here that I certainly want to affirm, and I think that we need to embrace right now, but there's parts of it that aren't following what Paul says is now what we should do in this situation as followers of Jesus. And so Ezra, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, while he was praying, it says, While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly, 
Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage. So my thoughts on this, on the sending away of these women and children. As I said, it makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, at the end of Ezra, it gives us a list, and, and I counted it to see how many people with this. It's about 113 men who married foreign women who are now sending them away. And so my thoughts on this is I'm uncomfortable with it. And as I say, it's the reason I read that passage before from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12 and 16. Whether this was the appropriate thing to do then or not, it's not the appropriate thing for us to do now. But we don't have enough information to know if they were offered that opportunity to become part of the Jewish faith. We don't know enough details to really pass full judgment on it, but I do want to say that it, that, that sending away makes me uncomfortable. And I think perhaps we do see in it a kernel of the hyper-legalism that we see manifest in the Pharisees of Jesus' day. That... that the response to grace must be a, a hyper-adherence to not just the letter of God's law, but going beyond it to extremes that end up being harmful to people. And, and so the other thing I want to say is our response to God's grace should not involve a lack of grace to others. If our response to God's grace is to become judgmental and critical and harmful to others, then I don't think that's an appropriate response to God's grace. What it is, though, and what I, I think we should see and affirm about it is it's taking sin and repentance seriously. Though I'm uncomfortable with the sending away of those wives, and, and though that's not what we would be called to do now, though I think it may be the kernel of, of hyper-legalism that we see manifest in the Pharisees, what we should affirm about it is that they take sin seriously. And this is completely consistent with the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 30, Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, I do believe Jesus is being metaphorical here. But... His metaphor points to we need to be prepared to embrace an uncomfortable response to our own sin. Jesus wants us to take sin seriously. Jesus' blood justifies us, not sin. What I mean by that is Jesus paid the price for our sin, but that does not make sin okay. 
It makes us okay. In John chapter 8 verse, well, chapter 8 towards the end of of that passage in your Bible, it might be italics because there's a good chance it it wasn't a part of the original script, but it's, um, I believe, a true story about Jesus uh, where we have this woman caught in adultery and she's brought before Jesus um, to catch him in a trap. And uh, they say, well, our law says that she should be stoned. And so Jesus responds famously, well, those who are amongst you that are free from sin, you go first. And so one by one, they drift away as they realize that they are not free from sin. And so this woman is left standing before Jesus. And Jesus says to her, does no one condemn you? And she says, no. And you know, the... the the, the sense of this situation is that Jesus is the only one who was sinless and has the right to cast any stones at her. But in this moment, Jesus says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus offers her this moment of God's grace, but then what he says to her is, go and leave your life of sin. That a response to grace in Jesus' eyes is not just go on sinning. Jesus has paid for our sin. He makes us not just okay before God. Scripture talks us about us as holy and blameless and spotless in God's eyes because of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. But that didn't make sin okay. It made us okay in spite of our sin. And so, though I'm uncomfortable with elements of this response by Israel in, in this season, what they did in this moment is something I think we're all called to do, and that is to reconsecrate ourselves, to rededicate ourselves, to come back before God again and again and say, I've sinned, but I want to be completely yours. I, I want to be as Israel was called to be, as Jesus was completely a manifestation of who God is on this earth. To keep coming back to that moment of God's grace and to reconsecrate ourselves in it. As I said, we live in a moment of God's grace. We live in the moment that, that has extended for thousands of years this side of Jesus where, where we can say, I am saved not by my works, not by my, my sin bank balance being in the right position because I can never get it to the right position. I am saved wholly and completely by God's grace through Jesus Christ sacrificing himself on the cross for me. We live in a moment of God's grace. Unlike the moment that Ezra spoke about that he describes as a brief moment, we live in an eternal moment of God's grace. And so what shall we say then in response to God's grace? I said I'd bookend with Romans and so we'll go back there now. Paul says, what shall we say then in response to God's grace. Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? 
By no means, he says. We are those who have died to sin. And so then in, in verses 11 and 14 of that reading we had this morning in Romans chapter 6, Paul, Paul talks about what, he doesn't use the word reconsecration. Uh, let's be honest, none of us ever use the word reconsecration unless you've been to Bible college and, and you like big words. Uh, none of us actually ever use that word. But what he's talking about is this sense of reconsecrating, of rededicating, of recommitting ourselves to God to live as best as we can, empowered by His Holy Spirit, free from sin. The Scriptures acknowledge that we will never get it perfect to this side of heaven, but this, this moment that Paul's talking about in response to grace is the moment where we don't just say, well, who cares? In verses 11 to 14, he says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of of righteousness. I love this is my Greek nerdy moment. That word instrument could be translated weapon. So I like to think when I read that, let your every part of your body be a weapon of righteousness. And he concludes, for sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law but under grace. And so how do we respond to grace? We understand that grace means we don't have to sin anymore. Not that we can. Grace means that we can live out what Jesus said to that woman caught in adultery. I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. We can reconsecrate ourselves before God and do what Paul says, not let sin reign in our body. Will we be perfect? No. Will we fall into temptation? Yes. And so this reconsecration moment is an ongoing relationship moment with God. Where we move from, it's okay because Jesus loves me, to sin is not okay but Jesus still loves me anyway. It's a living out of our true identity as pure, spotless and blameless before God in Christ Jesus. So I want to invite Ali and James to come and sing her last song before giving birth. The scriptures call us to respond to grace. Not in a way that says, oh, it's okay. Jesus will forgive me. That's half true. Yes, Jesus will forgive you. But the scripture calls us to respond to a grace in a way that constantly rededicates and reconsecrates and and sets ourselves apart as holy to be instruments of righteousness in this world. And so I want to invite you as, as James and Ali lead us in a song to, you can stay seated this morning, you can, you can stand, you can kneel, but 
to engage with God in a moment of confession before him. Acknowledging, as Israel acknowledged, that we are sinners saved by his grace. And taking a moment of dedicating ourselves to him and his alone. And inviting his Holy Spirit to enable us to go and live our life of sin. So Heavenly Father, we We stand, we sit, we kneel, we come before you in this moment and we confess that we have gone astray. That we have fallen short, that we have missed the mark, that we have sinned. So I pray this morning that you would Help us to not live in guilt or shame, but to see afresh the enormity of your grace. And we thank you that by the blood of Jesus we are saved by your grace. And so we want to rededicate ourselves to you this morning. We want to re-consecrate our lives before you this morning. So Father, I pray that you help us to, to not fall in the trap of anxious legalism. But help us also to not fall into the trap of thinking that it doesn't matter. But let your grace be what empowers us. to walk free, to steer clear, to turn away from sin in our life. I pray that we would be tuned to you this morning. That we would better represent a righteous and holy God in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. As you head back into your week, we want to encourage you to stay in His Word, stay in His love, and stay strong in your faith. Don't forget to keep up to date with what's happening via Facebook, Instagram, or via our website at ycbc.church. See you soon.